Welcome to Clear as Quantum, an Equus podcast about quantum science and the exciting technologies that are just around the corner. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we'll try to dust the cobwebs out of the quantum physics realm that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers, and last week I gave my first quantum information science lecture at the University of Newcastle. I'm Liz Bridge, and last week I met with Queensland's chief entrepreneur to discuss ways to turn our science into technology. I'm Yasmin Svenlat, and I squared so many numbers last week. <laughs> Equus is the Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, funded by the Australian Research Council. In this podcast series, we are interviewing a range of Equus researchers working in universities across Australia. Today, we're talking to Thomas Falls from Macquarie University, who builds quantum particles that do not even occur in nature. And these special particles are actually a combination of matter particles like atoms and little bits or quanta of light. Physicists use the term photon for pieces of light, and we can detect these photons one at a time using a device called an APD. Those are some quantum keywords to listen out for in this conversation. Thomas, thanks for joining us here on the Clear as Quantum podcast. We're keen to hear about what you do with unnatural particles, photons, and APDs. But first, can you tell us a bit about where you work and how you fit into Equus? Hi, Liz. Hi, uh, Jasmine. And hi, Lachlan. Uh, nice to be here. Uh, I'm actually currently based in Sydney in lockdown. Um, in my normal life, I'm actually uh, at Macquarie University. I'm an experimental quantum scientist there. I'm a chief investigator in Equus in the uh, Center of Excellence for Engineer Quantum Systems. I'm uh, also deputy director, node director in Equus. And what kind of research do you work in, Thomas? Could you tell us a bit about the work you do? My research group is quantum materials and applications. And what we do is we look into different uh, quantum materials and we explore them, we engineer them, and we try to find applications for these new materials. I'd like to pick up on that word engineer, Thomas, because that's in the name Equus, engineered quantum systems. What do we mean when we talk about engineering quantum materials? Well, look, uh, quantum physics has really come out of the uh, weird corner for a long time. Uh, quantum physics has just lived in uh, laboratory settings. People were thinking about it as a, as a kind of weird part of physics, which has just think of the spooky action at the distance. Um, people just did fundamental experiments, but over the past decade or so, the, the sentiment has really shifted and people are increasingly and, and almost exclusively now these days talking about technology, quantum technologies. It's been, it's been a big hype. And so it's really gone from fundamental science more towards engineering technologies, uh, engineering materials, systems, machines to perform certain tasks that only a quantum system can do. Uh, think of the quantum computer, for example. And that's what we mean by, by engineering. And specifically in terms of the materials, we can actually go and create materials. Well, we, we can use materials in nature and, and sort of modify them so that we can make use of them. So for example, there are certain, what we call color centers in diamond. Uh, and these color centers have the nice uh, property that you can manipulate them with light and they're sensitive to external magnetic fields. So you can actually use them to make very uh, delicate quantum sensors, very sensitive devices that no classical device can match. Think of also all the superconducting quantum interference devices that people have created already quite a while ago. Those are also quantum devices that uh, sort of are used in, in modern medicine. Think of the uh, MRI machines and, and all that. So in that sense, we're looking to create new materials or, or use existing materials and adapt them 
for certain purposes. But you can go even further. You can now these days even create materials that don't even exist in nature as such. You, you do something to the materials. You, you, you for example, expose them to, to light and they will be in a state that doesn't exist in nature. And uh, people are looking for new functionalities of these materials. Awesome. And so when you say don't exist in nature, is that sort of purely on a morphological, like aesthetical or a structural way? Or is it also in different kind of aspects? I, I might give you an example. So uh, if you take a, a material like aluminum and you cool it down far enough, uh, it'll, it'll become superconducting. But I would still say that that material exists in nature. That's, that's kind of how nature made the material. And if you just change the external conditions, it, it'll just go to a superconducting state and, and with no with no resistivity. But this this is a material as nature has created and as kind of as you find it in nature, you just need to create the, the right conditions around it uh, in terms of temperature. But here we're talking about materials that uh, you subject to optical fields or lasers or you subject it to microwave fields. And they show completely new phases that do not exist in nature. So they, they all of a sudden change their properties and you wouldn't find the material as such in nature, right? You could argue it's a, it's a, it's a similar thing, but changing the temperature is quite different to having sort of manipulating the material on purpose in terms of laser light or other means. Okay, cool. Well, I find this quite interesting. And I, I'm wondering, because for example, like you said, for a superconductive state of a material, it is very rare. It probably doesn't occur like on the surface of the earth naturally, but we know that matter in that state exists, for example, in the galaxy, uh, maybe neutron stars, or in any case, we know it exists somewhere in the universe, although possibly quite exotic. So is it then the case that we know for sure that the materials that you are talking about, per definition, can they not exist in nature anywhere or is it unknown? I would say it's rather unlikely that they exist because you create a uh, kind of artificial conditions under which you can observe it. For example, take two mirrors, put your material inside, and you can create conditions that you wouldn't find in the universe unless in, a, in another civilization because there are no uh, spontaneous mirror formations in nature, put it that way. But of course, maybe we cannot be certain the universe is fairly large. So I'm um, sure. So we'll say no, unless there is an equally or further advanced intelligent species. <laughs> of course. I wouldn't make a universal claim here. All right. Thanks, Thomas. So one of my interests is in applications. So all this wonderful physics research we do, I like to understand where we think it's going to apply. So could you talk about some of the applications of the research that you're doing? So essentially in the quantum space at the moment, there are three major directions where people are looking into applications. There is the sensor space, and that's quite vast. People are looking to build magnetic sensors, but also uh, other navigation sensors. Timekeeping is a big one. And, and for example, timekeeping is very relevant. If you can have precise clocks, then, then that will, would impact the kind of high-speed trading, to give an example. People are also building, and these are already commercially available, gravitational sensors. And one of the big things that, for example, in the UK that, that was propagated in the early days of the, of the quantum program there was uh, you, you could save a lot of money by being able to tell where pipes are uh, sort of laid in the ground and those quantum sensors can actually do that. So that saves a lot of digging of holes where there is no pipe, right? And, and that would impact a lot, the, the cost at that end. But, but, you know, Australia, for example, is rich in minerals. So people are thinking always about where can we find the next iron ore deposit. There is a good example coming out of CSIRO, which was based on the superconducting devices that they built. 
uh, already decades ago, and they, they developed an infield sensor and they've explored many mineral deposits that way. So this is certainly a big one. Then looking into optical technologies, uh, single photon sources, for example, um, there is a lot of hype around quantum communications, quantum secure communication. The thing is with, with quantum communication, the security is built in because you can't clone quantum information and you will always know if someone's eavesdropping on you. Obviously, there is there is big interest also uh, in the defense sector to, to harness those kind of capabilities. And China is a big lead on, on that front. And then, of course, there's the quantum computer, which uh, where people don't really know what they can do with it. But it's clear that a quantum computer will, will give such a big advantage in terms of, of performing certain tasks, like big searches in big databases or trying to design new drugs, for example, where you've got to search a big parameter space, optimize a problem. Uh, that's where a, a quantum computer uh, can make a big difference. And the idea is simple there because, because a classical bit can only be in, in a zero or one state. Whereas a quantum bit can be in uh, zero and one at the same time. And, and instead of black and white, can be in all sorts of superposition states. That means there's all sorts of shades of gray. And so it's got a built-in parallelism that, that can be harnessed for these kind of optimization problems. So, so these are the main three uh, application areas. And of course, in terms of the quantum computer, there are different systems being propagated, silicon, there's uh, superconducting systems. There's diamond. It's not clear what the winner will be, and maybe different applications require um, different different platforms. And so there's always a need to find new materials that can serve new applications. So the search for new quantum materials will never really stop. That sounds exciting, Thomas. And I can hear the connection there to this idea of engineering and engineered. It it's really putting a lot of flesh on that part of the name of Equus. I, I like the idea that we could make in the lab states of matter or, or ways that reality can exist that nature doesn't seem to create on its own. That's a pretty cool idea and certainly opens unknown sort of future technologies. But let's look back a little bit instead of looking forward. How did you get to where you are? What, what made you interested in quantum science? What sort of journey did you take to get into quantum science? Perhaps there's some people listening that are still trying to work out what they're wanting to do, and maybe you have any advice to them about how to get involved in this exciting area. Advice is always dangerous, right? <laughs> but for me, it was always the, the people involved, right? It's really the, the people that you come across, and it's just the lectures that I took, uh, some by chance. For some, the title sounded curious. We had certain lecturers that were just very engaging. And in fact, I ended up doing lectures with my later uh, PhD advisor, and that's how I got drawn into quantum. I was very much drawn between two worlds, the, the, the world of statistical physics. I was thinking about doing a theory PhD ultimately, but then uh, I had the chance to work on exciting experiments on Bose-Einstein condensation at the Max Planck Institute for Quantum Optics with a lecturer that I really related to very much and that sort of gave engaging lectures and, and just ignited my enthusiasm for the, for the project. So I decided to do that and just dived into it. What I particularly like in terms of quantum and quantum optics, which is really my core area of expertise, we investigate our quantum materials with quantum optics methods. And so what I really like about it is this close interconnect between theory and experiment, where you can predict a lot of properties by doing theoretical calculations, and then you find the same thing in the experiment. And, and I remember very much this one eureka moment that I had as an undergraduate student, I was sitting there. And I was in, in one of those lectures, it was on, on laser physics, and my later PhD advisor, he, he did like a long calculation on the board, 
And I was like, okay, well, fair enough. But then he he actually put on a transparency with, at, that was the time when we still had transparencies. <laughs> and there it was. People measured exactly what he had predicted on two pages of calculations. And I was amazed. I, I was just like, gobsmacked that you could really predict it that well and and that's sort of I, I guess that was one of those moments that that got me kind of drawn into uh, the whole laser physics quantum optics kind of field so yeah and Thomas when you were at high school did you always know you wanted to be a physicist or a scientist or was there other options on the table when you were at school how did you decide what path to go down Look, I was very broadly interested. I, I, I did things like Latin and things like that. And I really loved it. I really enjoyed Latin. I enjoyed maths a lot. I, I took math courses at uni as well. Like, And I was thinking becoming a mathematician for a while. But the decision to study physics was then again sort of fostered by a particular person, by a teacher that we had. I remember he, he was by training not a teacher, but he, was a, he did a, a master degree or the, the German equivalent at the time in physics. And, and he was very enthusiastic and he was very keen. And so he, he spent his free time, his afternoons, teaching us about general relativity and philosophy. And that really sort of eventually led me to, to the path in physics as well. So you say you had a physics teacher at school that was really inspiring. I had the same experience as well. And I think that something like that can really inspire young people into choosing a particular area. So I think that's great you had that experience too. Yeah, it's, uh, as I said, it's, uh, my experience is always the people that, that come across because the people open up the opportunities as well. Opportunities don't exist independent of people, I would say. So it's, I think that that's, that's my experience at least. And, and there are a few key people in my career that, that influenced my decision-making in the end. I, I think having good teachers at school is, is one of the, the key elements. And, and I personally believe that there should be much more funding going into schools, <laughs> into much better education that would benefit society a lot down the track. Thomas, you've given us just a few clues. You mentioned studying Latin at school. I don't think that was an elective at my school. Uh, you mentioned the the German equivalent. Um, your accent is not very strong, but it's there vaguely. So you didn't grow up in Australia. What's your perspective as someone whose quantum physics career has taken them literally halfway around the world? For me, Jared Milburn was just not. Jared Milburn wrote this very famous quantum optics book. That's how I knew that, that there was quantum happening in Australia. When you look at the traditional strength of quantum in Australia, it's specifically in quantum optics. Australia is one of the places to be in quantum physics. And that has been true for a very long time. And, and there are several centers of excellence for, for about 20 years now running in the country. People are looking to Australia for, for quantum expertise. And at the moment, there is big talk in Australia and obviously worldwide about quantum technologies. And, and uh, Australia has kind of in terms of investment of the biggest 10 countries in, in quantum science and technology has fallen behind a bit. But I'm sure Australia will pick up on that because there's a, there's a great opportunity there for Australia. And, and it's, it's, it's a great place to do quantum. There is a lot of knowledge and a lot of enthusiastic people. Examples like the Sydney Quantum Academy, for example, uh, are unique in the world and, and provide an excellent opportunity to move forward for the Australian quantum community. To me, it was definitely a place to go. It's uh, in the space of quantum science and technology. It's definitely a significant player in the world. I'm from the UK and I only moved to Australia a couple of years ago, but there's a huge number of quantum startups in terms of quantum computing, and spin outs from universities. And that's one thing I've noticed about Australia in the quantum technology sector is that it's really trying to, it's really getting involved and trying to go somewhere. It is, but there is, it's still a long way. Um, there are currently just two startups in quantum computing that I know of. It's true that, that 
<laughs> ironically, uh, a lot of quantum startups worldwide have actually Australian founders. So a lot of the quant early quantum talent, just think of Jeremy O'Brien, uh, who, who went and founded Psy Quantum, who uh, just recently uh, raised a lot of money um, and, and is, is now listed uh, at, uh, uh, in the US. So, so I think, you know, Australia has played a big role. Um, there are many startups, as I said, that, that are influenced by Australians. Unfortunately, they're not located in Australia, but maybe that's, you know, that's not necessarily to be expected, but, but uh, I think Australia is trying to change that narrative as well. And, and they're trying to, to foster a, an environment where, where startups can grow and, and, and the quantum industry can actually sort of emerge. I think that's happening right now. Thank you so much for that. Well, that actually brings me to the question. I, I know that you are the principal investigator for, um, I think it's a startup. Please tell us, tell us more about this. The startup is a startup that builds uh, spectrometers. It's called Redback Systems. And it, it came out of my lab originally, and it, it was supported strongly by Equus. And the fact that Equus supported Redback Systems in the very beginning allowed us to translate the technology that we had in our lab out into the field. And, and it's now a, a company, and we, we're now delivering spectrometers to other parts in the world. One of the interesting things about Redback Systems is that the product, the spectrometer, so Redback Systems is, is, is in and of itself not necessarily a quantum startup, but half the people on the startup, on the founding team, have a quantum physics background. Most of the customers, pretty much all of the early customers, are buying these instruments for use in quantum research. So it's one example of the way that quantum science, by being such a hot topic, is actually driving all sorts of activity across science more broadly. I was fascinated a number of years ago to learn about some of the insights happening in biology. It turns out that photosynthesis, plant harvesting energy from light, a really fruitful and interesting area of quantum optics research. <laughs> I should also jump in again and just come back to this, this notion of engineering. And it kind of Redback System is probably a good idea of illustrating the engineering aspect, because when we talk about quantum engineering, yes, it's true. We're, we're engineering new materials. We're engineering quantum bits, but there is a lot of engineering happening in the classical support technology that enables the quantum systems to run. There are good examples within Equus where people develop low temperature electronics, which we wouldn't call that a quantum engineered systems, but we need the low temperature electronics to read out our quantum systems. And so what we do at Redback Systems is we engineer spectrometers that enable us to analyze materials that we can then engineer for quantum applications, right? So, so in that sense, there's a lot of quantum enabled technology being built and engineered at the moment. It's a very interesting and, and important aspect on this journey, I think. I, I like to think of it as, as when you're working on quantum physics, you are really working on sort of the edge of knowledge, quote unquote, or the edge of what's possible. And so it's almost just because that bar is so high, as a byproduct, you sort of semi-accidentally, I guess you'd say it's not really accidentally, it's, it's very much a strategic move, but as a byproduct, you just have to solve a whole bunch of other problems in order to get to the quantum regime, but all of these problems are so hard that having the solutions to them actually solves a whole bunch of other non-quantum problems. So yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And that's, that is probably also, I often think the, the, the reason that a lot of quantum research, even when it's very fundamental, 
has immediate consequences for society and for uh, for what's possible right now. Well, it's a bit similar to <laughs> with a race to the uh, to the moon, right? So we got Teflon pants because not because someone thought that those are a good idea to develop, but they were <laughs> byproduct of the space research at the time, yeah. right? And and so in many ways, the the race to build the first quantum computer. Or, the fully error-corrected quantum computer down the track and the first useful quantum computer, we, we see every every day and, and all the time, we see kind of byproducts falling off and coming out. And, and that's I, I think that's the point about the whole thing. It's it's the journey that matters and, and all the stuff that we create around it rather than, of course, we want the final product, but we also want all that happens on the way. And, and uh, that's the exciting part, I think. It is the journey that matters. I love it. <laughs> I also like that how through your research, you've developed a device or a product that you can then create a company to sell, which you can sell to researchers to enhance and speed up their research. So you're helping other researchers develop science quicker, but you're also creating technical jobs in Australia as well. And I think so that's two really nice aspects of some of the research you've done spinning out to affect other people. And I think it's important. It's, it's part of giving back to some extent, right? I mean, for me, it was also a learning when I arrived first in Australia, I was very much the kind of fundamental scientist and didn't think about application too much. I was just happy to have a job to be frank. <laughs> uh, but um, <laughs> as all the academics are when they get their first academic job. Uh, but in the end, Equus and being part of Equus really, really shaped my thinking and really shaped the way I, I view the, the quantum technologies these days so really it's 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 yeah it's been quite transformative being also in australia and being within that center so yeah it, it was a very interesting journey personally as well thomas there's a question that we've been asking all of the guests on this podcast because a podcast is an audio only format mm -hmm. so the the listeners can't see your face and they can't experience the the feel of the equipment in your lab but we can hear what things sound like can you describe a sound which for you comes to mind when, when we discuss quantum? It's a click. A click? It's a click of a photodetector, right? Because, well, when you can't hear the photons uh, impinge on your photodetector, but you can translate the, the clicks on your photodetector into sound, and that can help you align your optical system, for example. And so for me, that's, that's a very key uh, experience working in a quantum lab, this kind of alignment and having a, an audio uh, that's associated with photon clicks on an APD, right? Um, because it tells you the, the kind of how well you're aligned and how many photons arrive on your detector. So that's, that's kind of, and, and it res resembles the, the kind of when you think back uh, nuclear physics and a Geiger counter, it's pre pretty much the same, the same principle, it's just a different energy. So yeah. That's that's kind of, but it's that's that's the sound of quantum for me. Right, that's cool. It's definitely a quantum sound because when you describe it like a Geiger counter, we're all pretty comfortable thinking of of electrons and and atoms as particles that would make clicks, uh, but we're we're often less comfortable thinking of light as particles. We normally picture it as waves. So so the idea that it that it's discrete particles making those those discrete one by one clicks, that's that's a totally quantum picture of light. And that's how quantum science started. The, the click of, a, of uh, a photon detector or Einstein thinking about what that process really is, that's, that's really, really the birth of quantum, right? So, um, yeah, in that sense, it, it really reflects quantum very well, that, that single photon click. Great. Well, thanks for that. 
I was actually quite delighted by the click because for me, a click has been really a formative moment in my uh, <laughs> learning of physics. In one of my classes, we just learned about general relativity and how time slows down as objects uh, speed up or uh, as further or closer to the center of the earth, as the gravity pull changes. It's all quite, yeah, 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 sure. I'm sure it's true, but you're not quite sure if it's really real or not. Um, and so just as we were in that moment of, of sort of, uh, you know, healthy doubt of whether our physics education was just a long-term prank um, <laughs> or, or, or not, the professor kind of wheeled in a, a big, a very big white box. And um, he told us this was a muon counter. And so we already knew from before that, you know, muons are these charged particles that are only created very high up in the atmosphere. They have a quite a brief lifetime, I would say, of a few seconds, maybe even shorter. But uh, because they can only be created uh, at this uh, specific environment very high up in the atmosphere, normally, in the absence of the possibility of the slowing of time, it would never be possible to observe these muons on Earth. And because their lifetime is so short that uh, the distance to the surface of the Earth uh, with their speed is just too large. So they will have decayed uh, into nothing before they reach the surface of the Earth. However, because their speed is so, is so fast, as they uh, actually they experience this, this slowing down of time. And so they actually live longer. And so as soon as he turned on this muon detector, you could actually hear click, click. The, the detection of muons right where we were where we were sitting that was for me really a, a beautiful moment yeah that I will never forget the purest form of uh, experimental physics I think is detecting something that <laughs> you could never have hoped would actually exist so I think that also is the case for single photons and um, what you're working with so thank you so much Thomas for that. Yeah, thanks, Thomas. Uh, that's all we've got time for on this episode, but we could chat for hours. It's really interesting to hear about your work and all the best for the future of your research. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Lachlan. Thank you, Jasmine. And thank you, Liz. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. And uh, yeah, all the best for the future of the podcast as well. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Thomas. Just as we're wrapping up this episode, there's one other cool connection between the words quantum and engineering. You can go to university and study to be an electrical engineer, but once in the past, electricity was just in physics labs. So electrical engineering, software engineering, aeronautical engineering, all of these things are what happens when technologies become widespread in, in applications and industry. And as quantum technology does the same thing, we should expect it to be normal to go, and, to, go to university and study a quantum engineering degree. I think that's super exciting. And some of you at school or listening to this right now might be amongst the world's very first ever generation of quantum engineers. I sure hope so, Lachlan. We hope that in this podcast, we can make things clear as quantum, or perhaps even clearer. To learn more about quantum physics explained by experts in the field, please subscribe to Clear as Quantum wherever you get your podcasts and share with your friends. Until next time, and remember to keep your mind open, but not so open that your brains fall out.